Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, Episode 17 with Danny Sell. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, Saul here back again with another episode of the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast. Now, uh, as many of you may know, I said it in the past, I really set this podcast up to really help feed my uh, feed my thirst for knowledge within uh, within the game, to try and speak to as many people within it with experience and to try and learn off those guys. And uh, really excited when uh, my next guest, Danny Sell, agreed to come on the show because um, obviously I've known, on him, known all of him a long time. Uh, Within working within academy football and Premier League academy football, he was uh, until very recently the head of coaching at West Ham United's uh, famous famous academy, and uh, he's got a wealth of experience to to share. And a, a really great episode this one. I'm sure you're going to get lots from it to uh, take into your coaching if you're a coach or if you're a player. You know, whatever level you're at within uh, elite football or whether you're just working or playing within the grassroots or amateur, there's lots of uh, gold to take away. So a great episode. Uh, big announcement coming soon from my end within terms of the Dynamic Ball Mastery Program, uh, my online technical training program there. That's going from strength to strength. Hope to share that with you in a couple of weeks. Um, Getting lots of great feedback from people. Remember the online technical training program uh, designed to support players' technical development. So any players, their parents or coaches who want to you know, support their player development, uh, try it out, the Dynamic Ball Mastery Program. Also, um, you know, it's designed about getting physical outcomes as well so um, you know uh, I'm a big advocate of doing functional uh, movement development you know if you look at within elite football not many academies and people like that are using ladders anymore they do a lot more functional stuff and the dynamic ball master program is a functional movement program as well so you get those speed agility and quickness outcomes with the ball as well which is technical ball technical outcomes as well so I'm a big believer you know you can get all those outcomes with ball mastery uh, on the ball as well and it's really the key philosophy of mine as well is that you know trying to get players on the ball as much as possible so you know within even in your sessions you know trying to even doing your warm-ups with the ball so it's a key thing and you can get these movement developments uh, outcomes out of these with the ball and uh, the dynamic ball mastery program will give you that as well for your players to help not only improve their technique but also help them uh, develop that you know that uh, that that body ready for for the game that pro game or whatever level they want to play so big news coming um, hopefully have that in the next couple of weeks for the next show we've got some big shows coming up as well but uh, without further ado let's get into it so Danny Sell welcome to the show hi Sell how are you very well mate you're doing okay yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very well, thank you. Good, good. Can you just give us a brief outline of your playing and coaching career, please? Um, well, obviously, like most kids, almost as soon as I could walk, I was playing. Um, and, and, and playing for my local side, and I was quite fortunate enough to, to spend a bit of time at a few academies. I, I was at Colchester for a little while. Um, I came out of Colchester and went back to park football um, from, from a logistical perspective. Unfortunately, it was hard to get to training. Um, I was then picked up by Dagenham and Redbridge, which I was quite fortunate because although I was quite young, um, 
they put me straight into their reserve setup, and I, I was playing at 15 years old. I was playing in reserve football when in the old conference as it was then, um, and and it was it was a real grounding for me. And then I got an opportunity to go to West Ham for a while, um, which. To be honest, it was a great experience. I was in the same side as the likes of Rio Ferdinand and Frank Lampard. They, 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 they were a good side. There's Lee Hodges was in there. There's there a real abundance of players in there that have, that have had good careers. Unfortunately for myself, I just wasn't that good good enough to make the grade. So I, I was released um, and did a little bit of flitting and flirting around some of the other pro clubs, just trying to sort of get myself back into it. But then I kind of started doing some coaching and I was only I was only just turned seventeen, and I started doing a little bit of coaching for a local side. So they they they, they kind of brought me in and and worked with some of their younger players, the real the real dots, and and I really enjoyed it. So I, I started up my own little soccer school, and because of the commitments to to my coaching, I, I just went into non league football and played semi professionally and and had quite a few clubs to be honest. And it was it was good and I thoroughly enjoyed it, but the coaching was clearly going to be what my forte was going to be. And, and then through the soccer school, just like 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 you know yourself, you, you end up making good contacts and and taking teams in to play against pro clubs. And I was approached by uh, Southend United and went and did some coaching for them. And it kind of grew from there. And a friend of mine pulled me up and would I be interested in doing some work at Chelsea? And I said, like hundred percent, yeah. I got got involved at Chelsea and had some great players who come through my. I had a development centre at the time. And they come through, and they they went into Chelsea's team, and they're still at Chelsea now, which is nice to see. And my, uh, as as Mick knows, when the, the sort of the last interview we did, um, a guy called Damien Matthews, who was at Chelsea at the time, went to Charlton, and he asked whether I'd be uh, interested in coming over to Charlton and work within the actual academy setup itself. And that's one of the, one of the things I've always wanted to do is work in academy football. So that was a that was a no brainer for me, and spent. F- five good years there and Steve Avery and Steve Grit, who was the academy manager at the time and then obviously he was placed by Steve Avery. They, they were really, really good mentors to me and, and helped me out along the way. And then um, I was on a, I was on my A licence actually and I got a phone call from West Ham and they said would would be interested in coming and taking over one of their age groups. And it was a real tough decision because Charlton had been really good good to me. They'd, they'd given me a grounding in, the, in academy football and it was a real kind of sort of the earth club, you know, where you've got to do a lot of the roles and job yourself and driving the minibus and it was all part of the fun. Um, but I, I'm a West Ham fan, so the opportunity to go to the club that sort of I, I wanted to play for and I've supported my whole life come up. And yeah, I've spent spent six good years at West Ham and now looking for an, my next challenge. So, so tracking back then to your first coaching job at, at a club, you said that was Southend, was it? That's right, yeah. What, is, what exactly were you doing there? I was actually working with the goalkeepers. Um, I, I, was a, I was a goalkeeper as a player. Um, in my sort of pursuit of a professional career, I actually played my non-league career. I played in midfield and as a right-back. But yeah, so the guy at Southend tried to get me to sign at Southend after I, I came out of West Ham. So he asked me would I come in and do some coaching. Um, so I was work, actually working with some goalkeepers and I mean it was real back in the day when it's still boots and laces as it is now um, but real back in the day when you know the, the bag of balls none of the footballs were the same you kind of scratched around for a few cones and you really had to put a lot of effort in in the sense of your personality because you certainly wasn't going to win any 
win any favours from the players, from the equipment and the, and the facilities that you were using. And it gave me a real eye-opener. So actually working with players who were even, some of them were a little bit older than me. So that managing a group of people and keeping them engaged and motivating them to work hard, um, that was a real eye-opener for me. I struggled at first. It was, it was, it was difficult because obviously I've ne- not really been in that environment before. So, and uh, so, I mean, talk, uh, how did you, you know, approach it in terms of your coaching? I mean, what coaching experience? You've done the soccer schools before. I mean, yeah. how did you, like, you know, develop your coaching style at that early time, you know, going into those with those older players in that, you know, in that tough environment? Well, I try, to be honest with you, it's the same as what I do when I'm mentoring coaches now. I try to just focus on what I enjoyed doing when I was being coached and the type of practices I enjoyed doing. Um, and I had some good coaches. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do some work with with Bob Wilson, and on, I was one of the uh, star keepers, believe it or not, on one of his soccer schools. And he had some great coaching staff there. And I just took took little pieces of of, of their knowledge that that I really enjoyed, and, and I learned a lot from, and tried to put my own personality and stamp on it. And and it's, it's you know what it's like when you first start out. It's it's real sort of a discovery stage of your, of, your, of your coaching sort of career. How are you going to manage the players? How are you going to talk to the players? I went in, first of all, and I was quite jovial and, and learned quite quickly that I couldn't be like that with some of the boys because they didn't want to be jovial. They just wanted to work hard. And it was, it, it was probably the biggest eye-opener in a sense of about having the balance of how you manage the session from the start to the finish and, and the way you sort of uh, communicate with the boys and when to be praise, when to praise them, when to be constructively critical, when to be hard and make sure that they're focused, and when to let off the reins a little bit and allow them to have a little bit more freedom in the session. So that really started to 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 mould me. But to be honest, my first my first proper say academy coaching role when I worked at Chelsea when I was running the development centres and I was managing some staff and working with with some good players. Was that was when I really started to get grounded on what I was like as a as a coach, to be honest. So tell us a little bit about that then. Your your first role in the development centre at Chelsea, your first role at a club, big club like that. What was that like? And then just a curiosity, what when you got that role, what what qualifications had you done at that time? Well, I, I, I had my B license, so um, I was fortunate enough that during my time trying trying to obviously find a career for myself, I managed to get my. Um, level one or football leaders award it was called then and then the, the old prelim badge um, and so I, I then pursued my B licence which which what you kind of needed everyone was sort of that was the that was the bar to, to go and work at that kind of level um, it, it was just a different environment you know you, you I mean you talk about polar opposite ends of the scale when you talk about South End and when I walked into to Chelsea I mean Turned up your first day, you was given a massive bag of kit, like more kit than I could ever wear. I was only doing two sessions a week for them. Um, and, and all the balls were there, the cones were there, the boys were turning up. They're all desperate to be there because they want to sign for Chelsea's academy. So in the sense of managing the sessions from a discipline perspective and whatnot, it was probably quite easy. But what was a challenge to me was they also were very, very good players. So if your sessions weren't bang on every time, you know what children are like, they... They're very quick to show you in one way or another how how they disapprove of what you're doing. So you, you have to really be on your toes. So making sure you plan properly and you know exactly what you want to do and and you, and you show that validity to what you're doing as well. So the players understand there's a reason behind everything that you're doing. Um, and I started to learn that through those guys. Guy 
Um, Danny Bailey was working there at the time, and, and Jason Broom, who was just come out of playing at Dagenham Redbridge. There was we had a quite good little team, so yeah, it was good. It was very good for for me to sort of to have to step up a level in what I was delivering from my soccer schools. You know, well, tell us a little bit about then. You know, practically that delivering. I mean, in terms of you know what um, remit were you given to the club in terms of you know, the sessions you put on, how much freedom were you given in terms of what you did put on and then how did you, you know, come up with the ideas or with your to, with, in terms of your, your your practice design? Well, the, the messages were quite clear. They they obviously had uh, uh, all the development centres they were running at the time, a, a core of players that were the, the real focus was on, you know. Um, we, we've highlighted these players. These are the ones that are in the centre. They They've got to... They've got to be engaged. They've got to be focused. They've got to be prepared, ready to come in for when they actually hit the ground running, playing in their first season of, of being an official academy player. With regard to the actual sessions themselves, the the guys were really good in the sense that although there was a, a structure, i.e. sort of warm-up, you go into some technical practices, you'd, you'd have a possession-based uh, practice and then you'd have a small-sided game, that that was quite clear and set out. What you did within that within reason, was was entirely up to you and how you planned it. So the structure always helps knowing that this is what I'm going to do this week. And obviously, if we wanted to change things slightly, if we wanted to do a possession before we did a technical practice, we could do that. But those those exercises and practices, were, that was quite solid. So when you're designing the practice, it was it, for me, it was just about touches, like you, you know more than anybody, it touches on the ball, making sure the players are all involved in the session, there's no queuing, there's no standing around because, I mean, as an adult, if I'm not involved in something for a certain period of time, I get bored. So I can imagine what it's like for, for eight and nine-year-old boys. Um, so that was that was my, my sort of focus, was making sure there's lots of, lots of movements on the ball, lots of touches on the ball. And as much as possible, I try to get opposition involved as well and some kind of resistance, where even if it was players dribbling in and out of each other, um, I don't know, scoring on end zones or whatnot without actual being tackled, just the, the pure pressure of them being there because I wanted it to be about decision-making and, and and their ability to adapt to certain situations. And so how long did you spend there at Chelsea? I wasn't there for that long. It was probably just, probably just over a year and a half I, I was there and, and then Damien moved on to Charlton um, and, and, and sort of asked a couple of us if we'd go with him. And at the time, Charlton obviously were in the Premier League and and going to actually work in the academy set up and and being around that environment it was a great opportunity for me so yeah just over just over 18 months and and so just before we go to the child then what was that experience then like I mean obviously apart from the kit and then the facilities what was that experience that short experience of like with working within that you know one of this massive you know academy one of the best academies in, in Europe what was that like yeah, well, obviously, at the time, this was just before Abramovich came in. So, although the um, the facilities and everything were, were 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 fantastic and everything, and Chelsea were who they were, the the real abundance of ridiculous amounts of money and, and resources and and the academy being what it is now. I mean, Neil Bath's done a fantastic job at, at Chelsea. That they are they are hands down one of the best academies, if not the best academy in Europe. So, you you kind of I wasn't really. A, privileged enough to be involved in all of the new kind of resources that they have and, and and the setup that they have. But what it did do for me is it it showed me that there's a level of that you have to attain as a coach in not only sort of developing your personality but your knowledge of the game as well. Because 
the better and better you work, sorry, the higher and higher you work, the better and better players you work with, they, they, they don't suffer any falls. They, 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 it's their livelihood. You need to be at the top of your game. And I know these boys were only eight and nine, but they, they were desperate to be signed a, a Premier League academy. So for me, it was about, there's, there's no days off, there's no minutes off for you. You've got to make sure that you're, you're focused on what you want to do. Your, your, your preparation is, is massively key. Getting your sessions set up before the players arrive. So there's a visual um, kind of look, look for them that they can see that there's, there's something going on and creates that little bit of inquisitive sort of thinking that oh, what are we doing today? And, and I think there's nothing worse than when you turn up to a session and, and the boys are there and they're standing on the side of the pitch kicking footballs around and you're still putting cones out. And I know that it's not always practical when you're sharing AstroTurfs with people. Now, I, I, I fully respect that. But when you have got the opportunity to set up, and I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned is my preparation and my planning, making sure that I'm engaging the players that I need to engage and, and focus on that kind of that delivery and making sure that it's spot on. So tell us then about Charlton. Then Damien Matthews takes over. What was that like initially? What was your first thoughts? And uh, what and what role did you take on? What was your first role there? My first role, I went in sort of working with the eights and the nines. Sort of my focus was getting this group of eights signed for the nine season, and then taking them as the as the under nines. Um, and it was we had a fantastic age group there. Myself and a guy called Dave Chatwin. We had a, we had a great age group. We had Callum Hudson Adoy, who's who's making great waves at the moment. He was one of our players. Um, Tyrese um, and Trey Jules, uh, both at Arsenal. Trey's flying at the moment. Uh, Tyrese has been in with England, and we, we had a real good group of eights. Unfortunately, as, as I've just probably said, uh, we look, we lost them to to Chelsea and Arsenal, but there's still a good crux of players there, and so I took them as an under nines group, and it was a, a real structured games program. The, the week was set up properly, and. And it, it, it was good. It was a good learning curve for me, actually putting into plan a curriculum like a, that, that Charlton had. They had a technical program they wanted to work on. Um, within that, obviously, you could you could adapt it and, and, and mould it to how you wanted to deliver it. But there was there was clear direction in where they wanted to go with their players. But so it was, it was a little bit different to the development centre at Chelsea, where we had a little bit more freedom. But still, I mean, Steve Grit and Steve Avery. Steve Avery is still obviously there, and he, he was a great mentor to me and an excellent, an excellent developer. So tell us a bit more about that philosophy then in detail. What was that? What did that look like? And then how did that affect your um, when you're planning your sessions? Well, you, you kind of we, we, we all the coaches and staff were given a booklet at the start of the year and what kind of technical <laughs> practices that they wanted the players to, to to do before a session really got underway and learning that ball familiarity and that that kind of development of those key skills um and it 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 was a real sort of structure that it was hard to get used to i have to be honest it was hard to get used to at first because obviously i've come from an environment where i turn up and i've got my own session in my head and i've planned it and i've put it out and and i'm ready to go and nobody else really mattered it was as long as i knew what i was doing i was the coach of that group Whereas this one, you had an assistant coach and you had people working with you and you had to sit down and you had to plan what we're going to do. So this was, um, I don't know, page four of, of the book. We're going to work on these things today. Um, and then that's going to lead into this this particular possession. And the basis of this possession is is has got to link with the, the technical work that you're doing. And so give, us, was, give, us, give us an example of that then, Dan. What would that, what would that look like then in practice? What, what, what would the first things be doing in your session? 
Sorry, sorry, say that again? Give us a practical example of what that would look like. So you talked about, you know, doing technical work, then leading into that. What exactly would you be doing? What, you, what do you mean? Well, I've always been big, and one of the things that I kind of we I sat down with Steve when I first come in there, I've always been very big on the balls being involved in the warm-up. Um, I know that with sports science today and, and, and whatnot, there, there's certain clubs that the, the, the kind of preparation of the players before the sessions and games is kind of separate to actually be having the ball at their feet. So I kind of incorporate a lot of the technical work, the, the, the inside and the outside of the foot, the drag backs, the step overs, all these kind of exercises that, that we kind of believed in at the Charlton at the time, incorporate that into, the, into a warm-up and then intensified it by adding some pressure. And that's that's how I would always structure structure my sessions. And whether it's a passing and receiving warm up, it might be a, a everyone's got a ball each warm up. We'd we'd have that, and that's how I would build it up. So the real relaxed part where the boys have got the time just to to sort of have the freedom to move the ball around without any pressure was done with the stretching and the sort of the the, the prehabilitation for the session. And then, then I would move into more opposed. Um, I called it pressure as opposed because obviously we had no one tackling, but you had the pressure of knowing that you've got 16 other, 15 other boys doing exactly what you're trying to do in quite a confined space. So the, the manipulation of the ball was key. And it, it, it looked like an absolute car crash at times, but that's exactly what I wanted it to be because football is, is a variable sport. It's not all predictable and easy. And you have to adapt to the fact of, you know what? If it's going to go wrong and it's going to go wrong quite badly at times and we're going to be people bumping into each other. Once we kind of got over that situation, depending on what, say I was working on, I don't know, receiving, that would make sure that was a real focus in the possession that I've then put on um, and giving the players plenty of opportunities to, to rehearse and practice and repeat everything they've done in the technical where they've had a little bit less pressure and opposition and now it's actually involved in, in, in a more realistic game. Um, give us an example of that then Dan so like so I tried to put in a spot mate but come on your that's okay coaching mate so uh, if you're, you're going to you want to you want to work on receiving with your players you want to get that repetition obviously in the opposed environment how do you do that and how do you then obviously make sure they're getting it on their weak side and uh, things like that well I'm, I'm, a, I'm a massive believer in everything has to be directional um, and, and I'm not criticising people who don't believe in that. It's just me personally. It's my philosophy. I see sessions where it's, it's, in, a, it's in a square um, and there's, there's, a, there's a number of passes that need to be made. And, and these, these, those exercises work great for some people. But the problem is when a player hasn't got direction, you take away an element of realism. So if you're actually talk, talking about work, receiving on the back foot and looking to create opportunities, especially in, if you was approaching in around the final third or you're breaking that line from from the sort of centre-backs into the midfielders, you've got to have somewhere you want to go. So whether it's an end zone game, whether it's you could split the, we split the pitch into thirds. So you've got to cover all three areas if you want to, if you want to score a goal. Um, and then I would manipulate the size of the area to depending on what I wanted the players to work on. So if it was a real tight, okay, one, one touch passing session, would make the, make the area rather than telling them they have to play one touch, I'd manipulate the area to make sure that they haven't really got a choice. Um, and if they do take more than one touch, then they're going to have to be very, very good with the ball, shielding it or, or manipulating it to keep it. And then obviously if we're working on, um, say, a breaking line passes to receive back foot to play forwards, I'd open the areas up a little bit more so there's more space for players to get in between the lines. 
um, and, and that's how I would kind of structure things. It's really, it's really difficult, obviously, to explain as opposed to show. It'd, it'd be nice to be, be able to show you, but, um, but yeah. So I, I manipulate the areas a lot, but directional was massive for me, and that that was key. You're talking about stuff like you know the the warm up rondos. You see a lot of which are very in vogue these days. You're not a big fan of those ones. I don't. I don't mind the rondos. I tell you what. I, I watched a guy. I was fortunate um, to, to to see a guy. He was the. Um, you have to forgive me. His name name avoids me at the moment. But um, he was the technical lead for the Spanish FA for the youth sides, and he showed us how they do their rondos, and they do it almost position specific. So they'd set it up that to score as opposed to the passes in and around. To score, you have to get the ball from one end to the other, and it has to go through the middle, the central players. And he would set it up so you almost had a centre-back at one end, a forward at the other. Your left-back, your right-back, your left midfielder, your right midfielder. And then your central midfielders would 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 be the, the, the players that would work in the middle of the rondo. And it, it really, really, really like sort of made something click in my head because what it showed the players was is there was, there was a reason for them to play in those tight areas because although you are trying to retain possession of the ball, you've got somewhere that you want to go. And I mean, we when I, when I worked at West Ham, we started every session with a box. And the problem with it was, um, if the players aren't at it, it almost becomes it's not worth it. Um, and the older the players were, the more they were at it. And, and I know that with the twenty threes, that their, their boxes were buzzing. But when you drop down a little bit and you get down, and it only takes one or two players if they're not doing it properly, it falls apart quite easily. So. I think with that directional play they had, especially the way the Spanish did it, and I know everyone harps on about the Spanish, but it's just this particular practice I really liked. There was an element of realism to it, um, and they had little rules. The player on the outside, he could play play to another player on the outside, but it had to be four, it had to be one touch, so he had to really know what he wanted to do with it. If he takes a touch, he's got to play back inside the pitch, and it was it was good. I really enjoyed that one. And then, so what? Tell us about your progression in at Charlton. What happened after that? After the eights and nines? Yeah, well, I, I kind of just I, I got on really well with the age group, and and we had we had a couple of boys in there who, who were some real talents, and and I was fortunate that the, the club trusted me, and I stayed with them for three years and took them up to under the under eleven season, um, and then I, I was sort of in the process of doing my A license, and and Steve was very keen to get me doing more eleven v eleven work, and. And, and I kind of took over the 12s and the 13s and it was then that West Ham came in to me. So, but yeah, no, I, I was quite fortunate. I, did, I had the same age group for a while. I mean, that, that has its pros and cons, but it, it, it was it was good for me because I got some real work out of those boys. And Tell us a little bit that, about the contrast then um, between, you know, I did the same sort of trip, uh, same sort of trip myself at Spurs and I had the same group for several years What's the difference between playing nines? Are you playing a lot of six v six? I remember Charlton used to like five v fives or eight v eights, or and then moving into like uh, the under elevens where you might play more a bigger, uh, bigger small sided games. What was it? Was the difference like that? And how did that affect you in terms of your coaching? Yeah, I mean, it, looking back now in hindsight, I think that anyone who's 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 being a head of coaching at academy or an academy manager, it's really important that your 7v7 or your 11v11, your 9v9s, whatever you're doing, has some relevance to the the, the real game, the, the actual 11v11 football. Um, I saw some academies, and I've, I've, as you probably have as well, been involved in hundreds, hundreds of, of small-sided games. And you look at their the way they set up their teams and... It doesn't represent what they're looking for those players to do when they go into eleven v eleven football. 
and I kind of learned that the hard way a bit because the, we set up a team and the team I'd say was probably a little bit more results orientated the, the the mentality of the players as it was about development because we were quite successful for two years and I, and I learned quite quickly that actually it wasn't necessarily the right way to have done things you know we, we we were coming back and we'd beat Tottenham and we'd beat an Arsenal and we'd beat a West Ham and everyone would say like, wow, it's this group, it's a real good, talented group of players. I'd question how much we actually developed um, from, a, from a game understanding. We could definitely go and win a football match. And I think that was a big learning curve for me because when it started getting to the bigger pitches and the, and, and, and the, the bigger game, my kind of understanding of it really needed a lot of work. I needed to work really hard, it, despite the fact I'd played and played at a good level. Um, it needed a lot of work because suddenly we were getting opened and exposed to things that I wasn't used to seeing, and that took time. and And Steve, Steve was good with me with that, and he helped out, and he gives you little pieces of advice, and that's why I was so so keen to get my A license uh, and get on those and get around people that work with eleven v eleven all the time. But I, I found it difficult at first. I'm not going to pretend that I, I found it plain sailing and it was all easy. It wasn't. It was it was hard and. And so what was but, the first? What was your first experience at eleven v eleven in in that academy environment? What age group were you taking? It would have been it would have been the under twelves. But so you did, you just took them to the twelves, the same group. Yeah, and and we, I've I've always been a very possession based coach. I, I like my team to have the ball. I like them to be expressive, and I like them to be creative. Sort of, we work on the, the if you imagine dividing the pitch into three, you kind of your red zone, your, your amber zone, and your green zone. And we kind of showed that to the players in the sense that this is where you move the ball quickly, sort of, and don't take too many risks. That red zone, you sort of your defensive third, and then your midfield third opens up a little bit. And but again, you need to be a little bit careful because obviously you turn over possession there. If you're not in, if we're not in good positions, we can get hurt. And then obviously you have your green zone where where it's I want players to be as creative as they possibly can. I'm, I'm probably not to the extreme where I want my my left back trying to beat every player inside the penalty area to come out with a ball, um, uh, especially at the top end. I mean, younger age groups may be a little bit different, but um, so we, we we were very good in possession of the ball. Where I struggled was out of possession because we were quite physically good. So when we played at mini soccer, um, we lost the ball. They got it back pretty much straight away. But as you know, with development, everyone sort of catches everyone up at some point. So when it went into the under-12 season, it was... Uh, it was tough for the boys because we got exposed a little bit because as good as we were in possession, the other teams were just as good and they could defend better than we could. And and we had a few quite quite uh, good hidings, to be fair, to start off with. But they, they, they learned quite quickly. And it, and like the players, I had to learn and I had to adapt. And, and I did. And, and I worked hard on it. I watched a lot of football. I, I spoke to a lot of people. And I, you read a bit. You watch as much as you can and, and watch some of the older coaches work and... That's how I had to develop myself. I was going to ask you that. I mean, you know, that's quite interesting, you know, working in that environment. You, you suddenly come up against a challenge like that. How do you, you know, develop yourself? How do you say, right, this is an area I need to improve on? You know, what's the, you know, avenues for you to do that? Well, just I've, I've, I've just written an article about the modern day player and about how they're, how good they are at um, problem solving and, and it's, 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 it's unfortunate the, the, the professional uh, player magazine are going to publish the article for me because they, they saw some relevance in what's going on. And I've, I've actually had that same conversation today with my partner about coaches because one of the biggest things you've got to be as a coach is a problem solver. And, and being a problem solver, you have to be brave enough to admit when you're finding something tough or you don't quite understand something. 
And then you have to be brave enough as well then to go and ask someone for help. And I don't think there's enough people around like that at the moment who who are willing to go and be criticised to a certain degree. And obviously it has to be in a constructive way and there's, there's, there's a way in which it should be done. But and that's what I had to do. I had to be self-critical and be honest with myself and say, right, OK, am I doing the best? Forget me, forget Danny Zell. Am I doing the best for the players? And at the time, when we went to 11v11, I wasn't. I needed to to develop and educate myself on how to put practices on and how to work with the players on a bigger pitch with more players on there, with more problems, with more variables and more decisions to make. Um, and I'd, might that be my advice to any coach is don't be afraid to hold your hand up and go, I'm struggling here. I, I'm finding it difficult to work on how to do this because I guarantee there's, there's, there's for every one coach that knows everything, there's a thousand coaches who don't. So well, it's quite interesting now. It's like because sorry, didn't probably Dan is that because the environment's changed a lot now in academy football. We're going to come onto this in a minute, but obviously now you have head of coaches, head of coaching like yourself. You were at West Ham. Most yeah. clubs have like an FA um, uh, uh, coach, their lead um, FAY, whatever they're called. I can't forget the name. Forget FAYCD. FAYCD. There you go. You've got the yeah. uh, they got they got people in the FA there to support. So there's a lot more support mechanisms, isn't there? But I know you mean. I think for me as well, it's very much like you know you're learning on the job. Almost, especially yeah. moving up through those small-sided games formats, and then it's like, what is it? Is that culturally? Is it it's this thing where you know, you, you know, is it they've done things? They look, I'm having trouble with this, but they say, you know, I suppose you're lucky in an in an academy, right? You can just go and watch the 13s and the 14s and the 16s and the 21s train, you know, every day and get ideas, right? Yeah, I mean, but I think there's 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 thousands and thousands of matches being played every week, and if a coach really wants to. F- to work on something, whether he's in an academy or not, even if he's in grassroots football, there's a game he can go and watch. Academies are quite open. If a if a grassroots coach phoned me up and said, look, I'm trying to do my B licence or I'm trying to do my A licence and I, I need to get some more exposure, I, I would invite him in and he could come and watch sessions and he could come and ask questions. And We're going to get about a million uh, emails now, by the way. But uh... Yeah, I mean, but that's, <laughs> but that's that's the game, isn't it? That's the coaching. The, the Premier League are massive on this coaching fraternity. They want the coaches to, to create this, to make it a real profession, what we do. And any like any profession in the world, there's all different levels in what people work at. And if you're not open to sort of to speak to people and give them a chance to come in and like you can't and sometimes you can't have them in and for various reasons but you you, you definitely try I've, I've, I I mean I'm sure you do I get a lot of messages every day and I try and reply to as many as I possibly can um, just like I email a lot of people all the time asking stuff as well and sometimes they get back to me and sometimes they don't I don't take it personally people have got busy lives but if you persevere with stuff you'll, you'll get there eventually Um but you, you have to put the work in. You have to put the effort in because we preach it to the players. We tell them about how dedicated they have to be and how professional they have to be and how elite they have to be. And these these are the standards that you set. Well, that's great, but you have to set those standards for yourself as well. Otherwise, what, what, they'll, they'll see through you eventually. And, and I think egos in football are probably the biggest downfall at the moment because people will see it as a as a personal thing if 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 you get criticized and well actually no do you know what they might just be trying to help you out and and I say to the players we have a lot of players who come to me and they say oh the coach is just giving me a real uh, rollicking because I haven't done this and I haven't done that and he just shouts and he shouts and he shouts and and I say right okay Forget the noise, just listen to the detail. So if, if he says 50 words and five of those words are really important, make sure you listen to the five really important words. 
And if the rest is just noise, just treat it as noise. Don't take it personally. It's not he's not having a go at you because he doesn't like you. He's 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 trying to in his own way help you. And I think coaches need to do that as well. Listen to what's being said, take the detail out of it and try and come up with a plan on how you're going to maybe improve that and make that work. Dermot Drummy was on the show last, uh, was one of our previous guests, and he made a great point saying at that elite level, it's really, there's a challenge to try and keep fresh and, you know, stay on the ball and, you know, be always on it. What do you know? How, how do you have, you, have you found that? How, you know, yourself working in those environments, you really got to you know, keep that struggle to keep that freshness? Yeah, you can't you can't keep doing the same thing because if if everybody in the world did the same thing, nothing would have evolved, and the game's evolving all the time. And if the game's evolving, we have to evolve and we have to change. And it's not forgetting your. I mean, I'm I'm starting my pro license in January, and a part of the pro license, your application process, you have to put down what your philosophy is as a coach, and what you what your what you like to deliver, and how you like your staff to work, and how you like your players to work and you have to be true to your philosophy you have to know who you are as a coach and what you want to do but a part of that you have to have that open-minded that sort of growth mindset to evolve as well so your core principles will always be your core principles and the way you want to talk to players the the style of football that you want to play and but then how you deliver that at times is going to change because the a the type of players that you're working with the age group of players you're working with um the dynamics of the group you're working with. I mean, if you're working with a load of boys who are um, uh, Brighton, for example, you're not going to maybe work with them in the same way you would with an inner city club in London, uh, Crystal Palace or West Ham. You're not going to work with them in the same way because they're different. They've, they're socially different. They're, they're psychologically, they're going to be different. So you have to refresh. You have to re- sort of study. You have to kind of seek new information out. I'm, I'm massive on reading books at the moment and I'm trying to get sort of the coaches to do the same things that the clubs that I've worked at is like grow your mind on it and you might pick up just one thing in a whole book but that one thing might just mould you just a little bit better than what you was before. So then um, moving on then to your next challenge, you got you have to go to move to West Ham. Yeah. Tell us about your first role there and then how that evolved. Well, actually, I stepped down, back down the age group, so I, I, they had a vacancy in under-10s, and it was one of those kind of things that the jobs didn't really come up that often at West Ham, and I had to make a real decision. Um, and it was, at the time, it was it was about my own sort of physical time, because I was still part-time in the game, and I was running my own business and, and whatnot. West Ham was literally 15 minutes from my house, 10 minutes from my house, whereas Charlton took me an hour, an hour and a half to get there. So... I took that into consideration and from a personal perspective and I looked at the club, West Ham, it's my club that I supported all my life and I had some good friends there and you know what I thought, sometimes you have to take a step backwards to go forwards in the sense of the age group that I was working with. Um, so yeah, first my first group I went in with were the under 10s. So, And what's, um, what's the immediate differences you found there in terms of you know generally the club like what was the, the philosophy was there any difference in the philosophy how they wanted you to play well yeah I mean I was quite fortunate I mean to, to go and work under Tony Carr and, and Paul Heffer who was there at the time to, to work under these guys um, is a privilege in itself that their knowledge of, of bringing players through was, was fantastic so and, and Tony was really good with me he, he's kind of he keeps himself to himself in a lot of ways, but he always just drops you in a little bit of information. And um, and Nick Acock at the time, who was the who was the 18s coach, they the, the, between the three of them, they 
they were really good to me when I came in. They, they they mentored me in the way that West Ham wanted to play, and West Ham teams have not really changed since I was there. It was they 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 want total football. They want to see players who can who can really handle the ball well and. And it was quite nice for me because it was it was my philosophy anyway. It was how I it's how I've been brought up on football. So it it, it was a nice fit. So then, um, in terms of like then with doing your sessions, what was the difference between that and Cholton in terms of your, with your freedom to your practice design and was there like uh, key things you had to work on each week? How does how was that structured? No, I mean they 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 obviously have an idea of the, the sort of areas that they they wanted us to work on, but again, it probably went a little bit back more towards how it was when I was at Chelsea. That as long as you're as long as you're working the players and they're getting a, a rounded experience, what you did within your sessions, within reason, was up to you. Because what they do is, and, and they were really big on this. Because my I'll never forget it. My very first session at, at West Ham, I, I was it was in the the sports hall there and. I set my session up and I was excited and a group of players came in and I must have had nine, ten members of West Ham staff standing on the side of the pitch just watching me. Didn't say anything to me, just watched. And I think it was a message, a clear message to say that you you can do within reason what you want to do, but we're going to watch you and we're going to make sure that you're working with the players. And and it, and, and it was quite good for me because at Charlton, the, the staff resources wasn't like it was at West Ham. They didn't have as many staff at Charlton. So... As as much as Steve got around and watched as much as he possibly could, he he, he was obviously very busy trying to do lots of lots of things. Um, but West Ham, they're, they're all standing there, and after the session, they they come up to you and they make a few little comments and praise the things that they liked, and well, maybe we could look about just changing that because we want to work on this player, and and it was more about getting to know the players to find out what they need as opposed to what the club actually wanted, because you can have as many curriculums as you like. If if a player needs a specific thing, they need to, you need to give it to them. So then, in terms of um, your progression there, what happened there? Was 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 how did your role evolve at West Ham? Well, it, I, I was I was I was quite lucky in the sense that literally six months after um, West Ham, and that's why I took the job at West Ham. The the E Triple P kicked in, um, and and a full time role became available, and and. and and Tony approached me and said he'd be interested in me becoming the lead lead foundation phase coach. And I, I sat down and, and I sort of said to him, my only issue with it was that um, with my A licence and working on the things that I'm working on, I need 11 v 11 football. And Tony was brilliant and, and so was Nick and Paul. They, they they sat down with me, the four, the three of them, or the four of us, and they, they slightly changed the foundation phase. They made it 9s to 12s. So... I was the lead of the phase, but I took the under twelves, so I got to do, got my eleven v eleven sort of source of football, um, and so that was brilliant, and I, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. That was that was a fantastic role. I was, a guy called Trevor Lewin, who was kind of look, overlooking that stuff at the time, um, and, and I worked alongside him and a guy called Del Robinson, and, and we had a, we had we had a real good team there. You know, um, Jim Hampshire was involved, and I mean the, the, the list is endless, but and if I've missed anyone out who listens, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, you just we had a really good team, so I, I got my full time job in football, which was which was fantastic. That's, that's quite interesting. That's that's quite it might happen luck rather than design. But now, obviously, like you know, a lot of clubs the foundation phase are now a lot of clubs are actually nine to twelve, aren't they? In terms of four teams within the foundation phase, and obviously that first year at secondary school was such a 
Yeah. A lot of people are recognizing that it's actually probably better to have them within the same phase rather than having another big adjustment in their in their life. Well, you've got, I mean, you can you can do it in any way you want to do it. As clubs with massive resources, they almost have a, a, a lead phase coach for every two age groups. But I think the nines to twelves is is because most clubs, especially category one, will have a lead foundation phase coach and a, an assistant foundation phase coach. And the way we worked it was they took care of the sort of the pre academy stroke nines and dipped in the tens. And then I managed and looked after. Although I oversaw the whole thing, I was kind of focused more on the 10s, 11s and 12s. And that progression from 11s to 12s. Kids need continuity and they need to know, they need to have a real grounding on what's what's going on and where they need to be at. So we managed that sort of transition quite well. Um, I think it's logical. How do you, you find that? Um, one, uh, obviously the new role. And as we know, people know the game, the EPPP and you know, the planning and the administration coming on that. And also, how is it in practice? You're taking the 12s, but also then you've got to try and manage the 10s and 11s and 9s. And how was that while doing that as well? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it was easy because it's not. There's a lot of work involved. You, you're working 12, 13, 14-hour days, two or three days a week, and obviously Saturdays and Sundays. And 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 then you've got you, you, what you be your shorter days when you're only working from eight till six and <laughs> yeah they they short ones <laughs> yeah yeah they they your short days but to be honest I was I was fortunate I had a lot of good people around me um, and and they 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 bought into what how I was trying to do it and Tony Carr trusted me um, which which was probably the the biggest compliment he could give me and and I wouldn't say just let me get on with it but he trusted me and with the guidance that I had from above with Paul Heffer and Nick Haycock and the way we worked as a team, we, we kind of, we kind of, it made it work, you know, and although the S the P does bring a lot of paperwork and, and I know there's a lot of skepticism around whether this is going to work and whatnot, but I think it's been revolutionary for the, for the academy systems. I look at the facilities now for these players and I look at the resources these players have got access to. I don't think that's the problem. The problem is, is making sure the clubs themselves, as opposed to the Premier League, make sure they focus their, their own players to do the right things. Because we can moan about it as much as we want. 80% of the people in the game at the moment wouldn't have jobs if it wasn't for the EPPP. They, they, it wouldn't be a career for them anymore. It would be just a part-time, everyone going back to becoming part-time coaches. The Premier League had given everyone an opportunity to actually have a career as a coach. And earn a living, and 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 still be able to support their families while still working in something they love. And unfortunately, with that comes accountability, and you have to be accountable to the fact that E Triple B comes with paperwork. And is it ideal? No. Do we have to do a little bit that's probably just ticking boxes? Yes. But for the greater good, I think if you look at the England teams this this summer alone, I'm not going to say it's all down to the E Triple P and the Premier League because. That would be that would be be harsh, but the fact of the the resources that are now at the clubs because of the E Triple P, I think that definitely has a that has a factor to that. In my, it's, that's my opinion. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I absolutely agree with that. And, and in terms of like um, your 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 first role as a manager, as a line manager, what was that like in terms of trying to manage your staff and uh, that sort of thing? Well, I was quite fortunate that I, I was running my own business anyway. So um, I had a soccer school and a, and a, and a PE company. So I, I was managing staff already. The only real difference 
was that there's more egos in academy football than there is outside of academy football. So he's managing some egos and obviously like any when you go for a job and other people internally go for a job, there's a little bit of treading on people's toes. But that was short lived and 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 I won't say again, I won't say I found it easy, but if you if you if you speak to people in the right way and you motivate people in the right way, you can make your life a hell of a lot easier. But what though, if you see, say you, you know you're, uh, you're 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 watching a session, watching a nines coach for argument's sake doing something, and you don't really think that's that's the, the most effective way of doing something, or it fits in with the philosophy, what do you what do you do there? I think it's about. I would say it's no different as if you wanted to talk to a player. I mean, it depends on whether you into. It depends on how severe it was and or, or how detrimental it was. Whether you step in at the time, um, which very very rarely happened. Or actually, you gave them a chance to explain themselves after the session. You just just a simple question of like, why why would you why would you do that, or or why were you doing that, or what was the benefits of that, and and rather than criticising a way that you're kind of sort of saying I didn't think that was any good, you kind of manipulate the situation to make them come up with the answers themselves. Well, like, is there any way you can have made it a little bit more realistic? And well, actually, yeah, maybe next time I could do this. And okay, all right, and and try and speak to them in a way that they, they, they feel empowered to, to, to adjust it themselves, if you know what I mean. Um, but obviously there were times where you had to sit, sit someone down and you had to say, unfortunately, like, what, that wasn't what we're looking for. That's not the standard of work we, we want in place. And they're not nice conversations to have, but unfortunately that's, that's a part of management. So, so then uh, moving on, what was your next role at West Ham? Well, I, I, I kind of... Um, I've almost done every role, and, and um, Tony Carr kind of stepped down as the academy manager and become a club ambassador, and 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 Terry Wesley was appointed, and um, and they appointed me as the the lead youth development phase coach. So I was I moved up to the to the to the sort of twelves to sixteens then, um, and and I did that for for nearly for nearly two years and. That was that was a great experience for me and learning, especially taking the 16s as well and moving up to that level of football. And I'd been helping in the previous season. I'd been helping Nick Haycock with the under 23s or under 21s as it was then, um, when Sam Allardyce was at the club. Um, and so I'd, I'd, I'd kind of got that bug for working with the more senior players, and that was a great experience for me and a great great learning curve for me. Um, and then yeah, took the 16s and, and was the lead youth development phase coach. And then, um, then after that, then it came into. Did you become the head of coaching after that? Yeah, and then and then um, Terry wanted to restructure the academy to make it um, a little bit more dynamic, um, and and kind of just try and test the boundaries a little bit on on how the best way to actually kind of develop these players. So he, he came up with a head of coaching nine to fourteens, a head of coaching fifteens to eighteens, and then himself, who was the head of coaching overall. Um, and and I was fortunate enough to be given the 15s to 18s role. So then tell us about that. I mean, that's obviously another a new uh, role as well that's come out of the the restructuring of academy football head of coaching. Just tell us a little bit practically practically what that meant, what that looked like, your jobs, your roles and responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this uh, the same roles as you would if you was a lead phase coach. The only the, the only difference was that the crossover of the teams um, and, and managing. A lot more on in the sense that the, the the quality of the delivery of the sessions, making sure that that what we were doing um, 
from a from a technical perspective, not only just a, from, from a theory perspective, i.e. filling out the PMA, etc., but from a technical perspective, there was a lot more emphasis on that and, and actually really nailing down the players and, and the individual development plans for the players and making sure the mentors were doing the right work with the players and they were getting good contact time, which was really difficult. I think the club would admit themselves that when we first set up the individual development plans, it was a massive, massive venture and they've, they've had to evolve over time because every player had to have a mentor. Some coaches were working with five players, some coaches were working with 12 players. If you add that onto what the day-to-day work around the building is, it, it was very hard to do that. Um, but what we did recognise is that it was really important that the players had a plan and, and, so, so, and so should the staff. And, and it becomes very specific then. And, and that, that was probably the biggest job was making sure that each individual player was getting their getting their needs and their their kind of their development was being monitored in a way that they could actually go out and do the work they needed to do. Give us a bit of an example then of these player development plans. What do they look like and and in in practice what did that contact time with their mentor look like? Well the the E Triple P wanted players to have individual learning plans. I think they were they they the Premier League sort of title for him is um, Terry came in from the Premier League um, so he, he had a clear outlook on how he wanted the plans to work and basically the boys each get their folders and they sit down with a mentor they get allocated allocated a mentor uh, who sits down with them and goes through what their targets are their sort of short mid-term and long-term targets micro, meso and macro and if you want to use the terminology of the ECPP um, but they they had they had some clear targets on what they wanted to achieve, and then we we stepped down a, a tier lower than that and started to look at okay so if you want to achieve these targets what kind of attributes and qualities are you going to need, so then they kind of give them make a list of, of the attributes that they they feel that they need, they then graded themselves um, traffic light system red amber green and then obviously there was gold standard, um, and then what through that process of sitting down with that player it kind of Give, gave you a natural sort of progression towards what their next block of work would look like from an individual perspective. So say, for example, he was a centre-back and he said, well, okay, to, to play at the highest level, I'm going to need to be competent in the air. I'm need, going to need to be able to play off both feet. I'm going to be able to, be able to defend 1v1. In the modern-day game, I'm going to be, able to, be have to be able to step out with the ball, so I'm going to have to be comfortable in possession. And as he worked down his list, he would then give himself a colour. So if, if competent at heading become a was a red well that was a natural obviously a natural progression for that was that was his initial six week target to work on um and if that ended up being a 12 week a 16 week a 20 week a, a year's target then so be it but how would he go about doing that then if he said look i've got problems with one uh for instance head in the air and then also my yeah. left foot's my weak foot's not very good what would be the uh how's he going to go and work on that well, one thing you can't guarantee in, in anything is, especially heading, is you can't guarantee there's going to be headers. And if there are headers, you can't guarantee he's going to be involved. So there's a lot of individual work that went into that and time with their mentors. Or if a player, could say, for example, the mentor wasn't specifically a football mentor, it might be that he pulls one of the coaches and just says, well, I want to go out and I want to do some work. And I don't know, 20 headers after training, 30 <coughs> headers after training. Um, come in on his day off. So you come up with that work a bit in isolation in terms of that, and then 
take it into the game after. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to, to... I mean, there's loads of scepticism around repetition training and um, I think <coughs> we, had, we had the conversation when we talked with, with Mickey before. Um, do you, do you, can you do specific skill practices by yourself, technic, technical practices by yourself and how does that develop you with your decision-making and what's the trade-offs of that? I think that's always the biggest question. Will you trade off when you're doing that? But the bottom line is there are certain things that you can't really consistently give a player unless you work on them either on their own or within small groups. They need to have that repetition of of doing something. Now, what I, what I do is I generally take two or three of the players who are doing heading. And so we added a little bit of a game to it. So it might be a heading game. Okay, we're going to, there's two people on the outside and we're going to randomly throw balls, whatever it might be, to try and give a little bit more realism to the game. But at some point, you just have to do the work and you just have to constantly get up. And if it's timing, it might be better that he does it unopposed because he, he needs that time to actually just make a header. <laughs> so, so looking like now back in terms of your time in the foundation phase and then the development phase with the younger ones and the older ones, now how would you think, you know, how what's your ideal in terms of how it should be structured in terms of, you know, you talked about, you know, always being linking to the game and being realism and, you know, when when does that start? Does that start right right from the beginning? And or you know, for instance, what's your what's your ideal for a a, a, a small sided game setup of the younger age groups? I think the the biggest thing with the younger age groups is the the kids have to have fun. They have they have to have fun. They have to enjoy it because um, I, I was having a, a chat with someone today, ironically about development and and how things are and the game I was watching. And if these boys have a career and they play till they're 35 and they come in the building at five and six, which some of them do now in these development centres, they're, in the, they're potentially training and playing most of the week for 35 years, 30 years. And if, if the first initial stages aren't fun, then it's a, it's a very, very long career and quite a monotonous one. Forget the financial gains of being a Premier League football player or a Champions League football player. But you, you, you've you got to have that enjoyment factor. And the boys at that age, they want to play games. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be a football match, but they want to play games. They, they, want, they, want, to, they want to do things that are fun and enjoyable. Because I watch practices at times and these A to B passing practices and, and I know they have validity and people have developed players through doing that. But I look at the boys who are standing there and if there's two or three in a queue and within five seconds, then they've, they've lost interest in what they're doing. And then suddenly that, that has an impact on the quality of the, of the pass that they're making or their, their concentration levels or their decision-making. And then, then it becomes a vicious circle because the player's then bored. And because the player's board is not doing it properly, and because he's not doing it properly, the coach then starts moaning. And then the coach starts moaning, which upsets him. And now he's not only bored, he's upset. And, 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 and well, it just goes on and on and on. So the structure for me, they, they have to have fun. They have to enjoy themselves. They have to have lots and lots of touches of the ball. They have to have lots of opportunities to make mistakes. I think that's the biggest key. And how you manage those mistakes is really important as a coach. And the, the way you... You kind of encourage them to see those mistakes as learning opportunities as opposed to, oh, my God, I've got it wrong. Um, and that that instinctive look over to their mum or dad to go, oh, no, what's going on? And the mum and dad making the gesture at them as you have to say, what are you doing? Um, 
<laughs> trying to keep the players away from that sort of situation and have that that growth mindset that we were talking about earlier with the coaches, trying to trying to make them see that I can't get better unless I keep getting it wrong for a little while. I have to get it wrong. I have to make it. I have to make mistakes. And as they develop that, then obviously they'll they'll improve naturally themselves. They'll self correct, and then that leads into the sort of the structure of the games. And I'd say the same for that. The five aside, the introduction of five aside at the youngest age groups and seven aside was 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 a have to for me. Because then now you've got players that are touching the ball a lot more. The only thing I don't agree with, with is when I see clubs and they've got a seven-a-side game and they've got six players on the sideline. And I, I, I'm not sure about that for me. I, I think that they should all be playing as much as they possibly can. And if it means setting up a, a mini-goal 4v4 on the side whilst the others are playing, I think that's that's really important, especially at nines and tens. And I mean, you talked about your uh, you, you're doing a pro license at the moment. So, can you tell us about your what is your philosophy then? You know, if you say you, for an argument, say you got your own academy. What was, what would be your philosophy of that academy? Talk, obviously, you talk about fun and having that early age groups. But I mean, you know, in terms of how would you want them to play and you know that sort of thing. I think the, the, your initial issue when you're taking over an academy or when you're working somewhere is that you you, you have to instill a culture, um, and that has to be around the, the way the people behave around the building and the way they interact with each other and the way the parents behave and the way the staff treat the parents because the parents get a rough end of the stick at times and they yeah they they are they can be high maintenance um some of them and but they only want what's best for their child so creating that culture where the boundaries are set everyone understands the requirements they know what's right and they know what's wrong and there's consequences when things are stepped out of line and there's reward when things are done properly and everyone's nobody's different you 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 get away with what you're allowed to get away with so that cultural thing at first and that honesty um, the discipline the respect around the building and honesty is probably the biggest one is just just be honest with people and do it in a way where you're you're respectful and if you can tick all those boxes, the discipline, the respects, and, and add integrity to that. If you can do those, sorry, go on. Go on, mate. Go on. Sorry, Dan. Go. Yeah, if you can, if you can do those things, and you can start to create a culture around the building, the football side of things are a lot easier to manage. Because if someone can take an element of criticism, because you're doing it in a respectful way, and they know that it's it's an honest, you're being honest with them, and it's going to help them develop. If you can do those things, then the kind of your, your footballing philosophy, and I'll come on to that in a second, but whoever you are and whatever your footballing philosophy is, it becomes easier to implement because everybody knows where they stand. Everybody's clear on what the objectives are. Everybody knows what the standards are about, around the building and, and when you're travelling to away games and when you're coming into the training ground and, and all these different facets that add to the melting pot, which is academy football. Um, and that that would be my very very first thing that I do is get the culture right, make sure everyone's on the same page. It's interesting. So, and, and what advice would you give to uh, a young aspiring coach who who's want to you know try and make their way in the game and reach the heights that you've have you've reached? Oh, I mean, it's, and hopefully I've, I've still got a long way to go at the end of the day, and hopefully I'll I'll get there. And and, and I'd give the same advice to them as what I'd give to myself at the moment. And you, you have to believe in believe in yourself and you have to believe in what you're trying to do and you have to be willing to put yourself out there and 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 not almost be shot down is probably the wrong terminology to use but 
but be be criticised, I suppose. Um, be uh, open to the fact that people are not going to necessarily like what you're doing and the way you're doing it. And then have you got the mindset where you can take that as a as a learning as a learning opportunity and and develop yourself. And but there will be times where you're going to go, no, that's the way I want to do it. And okay, thank you for your information. So be true to yourself. Be believe in yourself. Um, understand that it's going to it's really hard work if you want to whatever level you want to reach at even if you want to run your own Sunday league club and you want to have 40 teams and you want to have a grassroots set up and it's hard work and it takes a long time and especially if you want to get the culture right and the environment right um, but it's dedication but it's no different in any other industry so if you want to if you want to reach the higher higher levels you, you have to be focused and that's one of the messages I give to the players and the staff that whether you're going to be a footballer or not your work ethic and how you work around the building and how you conduct yourself and people's perception of you, that that is what's going to carry you, not necessarily always what you know. And what about uh, advice to a young player in a similar, you know, one of making his way in the game, wanted to, you know, at the beginning of his journey or her journey? I think they, they, they have to realise the amount of adversity on their journey. There's very, very few players, if any, who have ever gone from nines to having a successful football career without dealing with some kind of adversity, whether it's injury, illness, um, being released, something happens within their family, something happens to one of their friends, something happens at school. They've got to be able to deal with adversity. And unfortunately, there's not many things you can do with them until it happens to teach them how to deal with it because everyone's different. Um, but understand that that's all a part of your journey and not to quit at the first hurdle. And if you really, really want something, whether you get there or not, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, do you know what? I did everything I possibly could. And you know what? Sometimes, like, I look at myself, for example, A, I don't think I was ever going to be good enough, but did I really give everything I possibly could to become a football player? Probably not. Um, and I always have that sort of little thing in the back of my mind of, Maybe if I'd have done that or maybe if I'd have done this, it would be different. Try and leave try and leave no regrets. And unfortunately with football, with children, there is a sacrifice to be made and, and it's not a nice one. They sacrifice a lot of their social interaction with their friends and, and whatnot and the rewards are massive. But you, you, you have to make that sacrifice, unfortunately. And, and, and if you're willing to do that and you really, really want it, there are a lot of benefits to get out of football, whether you make it or not. Um, groups of friends there's there's careers to be had in the game now if you want to be a physio you might want to be a coach you might want to be a sports scientist you might want to be a groundsman you might, be, might want to be a kit man or a chef there's so many different things you can do now but just just give it everything you've got and, and understand that at some point you are going to have to deal with a, a setback Danny Sell thanks very much mate it's been fantastic no so you're, you're a star thanks for your time Thank you very much. Cheers. See you soon. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.